0: How's everybody doing? All right, let me ask that again. How's everybody doing? All right. Um, We're going to go straight to scripture this morning, uh, this afternoon, rather. Um, If you were here last week, then perhaps you remember that we made an announcement that we're actually last Sunday would be the last Sunday that we would be preaching through the book of Romans uh, till next year. We're going to pause this series. Um, If you haven't been with us and you go online and catch up, you would know that we've been preaching through this incredible book of the New Testament. Um, And actually, during the retreat, we're going to continue uh, to spend some time in Chapter 8 of Romans. Uh, So if you're not going to the retreat, um, we will share those sermons later on, and so you'll be able to keep up with what we've been studying. But today begins a brand-new sermon series that we're going to spend time studying key passages of Scripture as we wrestle with the idea of the marks— of a surrendered life where we're looking at the idea of what does it actually mean for us to have a life that's surrendered to Jesus, a life that is the posture, the orientation of our life is one of ongoing surrender to Jesus. And when we think about what are the marks of that, the reason why we're approaching that question or that subject from that angle is because it's quite easy for any of us to think that we're surrendered to Jesus when actually we're not fully. In fact, there's this passage before I read the main text that we're going to spend time in, in 2 Corinthians, the 13th chapter, verse 5. Look at what it says. It says, Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you fail to meet the test? And so often we think we're surrendered, we think we're in a different spiritual place than we are. This series is going to help us, give us some tools to kind of examine and reflect, am I actually living a surrendered life? So as we get into this text, I want to forewarn you that in this series, Jesus is going to have some challenging conversations with us through his word. Um, And so uh, how many like when people get in your business? Thank you. Nobody raised their hands. That means everybody here is sane. You're good. Nobody really likes when people get in your business. Um, one person raised their hands because they're just really holy. But um, the rest of us, we don't want that. We, we, but I want to warn you, Jesus is going to get in our stuff. Um, and today is going to be a key conversation um, in this series. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians, the 8th chapter, verse 1 to 9. Says the following. And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. So we urge Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that through his poverty, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gift that it is to gather in your name and to come to your word with expectant hearts. We pray that you would meet us, give us soft, attentive hearts to hear your voice. We thank you, Holy Spirit, that you desire to glorify Jesus, to help each and every one of us to see him more fully, more clearly. And we thank you, Father, that we could meet you in the depths of your grace that you have toward us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen and amen. I remember uh, when I was single that I didn't have a high threshold or tolerance for noisy kids. I just got to be real. And so if I was on an airplane and there were kids crying, uh, I was among one of those people that's like, please, somebody shut this kid up. You know, just like... Um, it, it would just, I had a, a very low threshold. It was just like, ah. So if some and folks, are, hey, let's get together, and I knew kids were going to be there, I would have to brace myself because have you ever been in a scenario where there's like 10, 15 energetic kids hopped up on sugar? It's pandemonium. Like they're going over furniture, they're crashing, they're making a mess. And so I have much tolerance. When I tell you four kids later, I am broken in. I don't hear it. I don't hear the noise. I'm on a plane. Kids could be crying. I'm just relaxed. I fall asleep. I see the folks up front twitching. I was like, oh, I remember those days. I remember there was this, took our kids to an ice skating rink in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, uh, partly because I wanted them to see my old neighborhood where I grew up in, and I wanted them to see what I didn't grow up with. Which we didn't have ice skating rinks when I was a kid in Sunset Park. I was like, here, kids, here's gentrification. And so we're there. <laughs> And all these kids are on this ice skating ring, and it was pandemonium. Because you know on an ice skating ring, you're supposed to go in one direction. Everybody. No, not these kids. And so they're crossing. They're on top of each other. It's nuts. And there was this woman on the side of the ice skating ring where I'm like, why are you here? Because you don't have the look of someone whose kids are in an ice skating ring. She looks so stoically detached. It was the calmest face I had ever seen. And so I'm looking, I'm like, well, if I didn't have kids here, I wouldn't come to this. Like, why is she here? And then why is she so relaxed? What is going on? All of a sudden, a friend of hers comes and says, hey, what are you doing here? Oh, just, where are the kids? And she's like, oh, they're there. And so I was like, wait a second, she's this relaxed and her kids are in the ice skating rink? And then she said the magic words. It was like, oh yeah. It's Tom's responsibility. So the dad was in the ice skating rink. She was there, no care in the world, no responsibility, even though her kids, I still think of her peaceful face. I'm like, wow, would I want to live like that all the time. So peaceful, no care in the world, even though her kids were right there. I start with that story because in many ways, How we relate to the things that we're responsible over really is an interesting thing. We're all experiencing it. We all have things that we're responsible over. We all have things that are our property, that we own, that people would say, this is your responsibility, whether it's your car, your apartment, your house, your career, your money, your bank account, your time. We all have things that we relate to under this kind of rubric of, I own this, I'm responsible over this. And if we're honest, for many of us, it can be a tension-filled experience. We relate to the things that we're responsible over, either with crazy detachment or a lot of anxiety, where it weighs on us. It absolutely is so heavy. And it's constantly on our mind. You know, it, it's interesting that our, our very economy in the US actually, one of the key indicators, if it's doing well, is home ownership. And so they're constantly measuring that number because they know if home ownership is on the rise, it has a positive ripple effect throughout the whole economy because that means people are going to buy stoves and couches and furniture, and they're going to get all these things to adorn this house. If home ownership is on the decline, it has a negative ripple effect throughout the whole economy. Ownership is a part of our life. We're always relating to it, but it's not necessarily, the issue is not necessarily what you own. How much you own, the issue tends to be when the things that we own own us, when they drive us, when they're constantly on our minds, when we can't live without it, when we have it, but if we only had more of it, or if we have too little of it, and we don't feel content with what we have. We constantly find ourselves on this seesaw of an experience of I want more and I'm not happy till I have more or I have too little. Or uh, finding contentment and joy in the midst of our relationship to the things that we own is an ongoing struggle, it's an ongoing challenge. But it's all the more a challenge because when we look at scripture, one of the things it tells us about our hearts Because of sin, because of how we've been impacted through the fall, kind of the starting place for all of us is that we relate to things as owners. We own things. This is mine. I want more of it. That relationship to things is a toxic, costly relationship for many of us. Because it creates all sorts of burdens, anxieties. The things that we're anxious over most of the time are the things that we own. If you don't own it, you're not stressed over it. Are you stressed over someone else's house? No, you don't even think about it. Are you stressed over someone else's relationship? Doesn't even cross your mind. You're stressed over your house, over your career, over your income, because it's mine, it's ours. So we have this dilemma, we have to relate to things, but yet the way we tend to relate to them creates a lot of tension, stress, anxiety. So what is God's solution for us? The solution is that when Jesus invites us to follow him, the best way I could describe this revolutionary experience that Jesus invites us into, that changes everything about our lives when we say yes to following him, it would be the equivalent of you growing up in your culture, with your language, with your traditions, and one day to the next, you're introduced to an entirely new language, an entirely new culture, an entirely new set of traditions, and you're told, follow these now. It would be disorienting, so disorienting. For those of you that are married, have been married, you know That you grow up in your family and you have your traditions, your way of doing things. You get married to somebody. They have their traditions, their way of doing things. And the first couple years of marriage is this, like, figuring out process of, I know this is how I did it. I know this is how you do it. Now how can we figure out how we do this together? It's this, like, clash of culture that happens. And so with respect to following Jesus, our hearts, the default is, I'm an owner. I own. This is mine. Jesus comes and gives us a different culture, a different way of living. And the way of living that Jesus gives us is, you're not the owner. I'm the owner. You're the steward. You're the manager. We go from this is mine to following Jesus where he teaches us, open your hand because it's not yours. It's mine, but I'm going to place it in your hand as a steward. What's a steward? A steward is someone who acts as an administrator of the affairs and possessions of another. And so as we're looking at this idea of, how do I know that I am living a surrendered life? What are the evidences? What's the markers of a surrendered life? One of the key areas that you and I have to look for, have to discern, have to reflect on and examine if whether or not we're living a surrendered life is how we relate to money. Can you say money? Some of you are like, man, I wish I would have stayed home. I, I didn't know this was going to be the sermon. Uh, can talk about money. Ah, I, I, know, I, I know there's a taboo, there's some difficulty, there's a lot of unfortunate baggage. Um, Some folks I know, it's just like, man, I haven't been to church in a minute. First Sunday, I'm back talking about money. Of course, church is talking about money. You know, and, and so there's all this reticence to actually engage in this conversation. Yet, I need to tell you something that's really fascinating. In the Bible, there's less than 500 verses on faith, a little more than 500 verses on prayer, over 2,300 verses on finances, So why does Jesus want to talk to us about our money is because if he doesn't talk to us about our money, if we don't reflect that we're living a surrendered life and it shows up in our money, if it doesn't show up in our relationship to our money, here's the difficult news flash we have to process, it may mean that we're not fully surrendered yet doesn't mean you're not trying. doesn't mean that you're not trying to hand over other areas of your life. But here's the thing. If there's like this epic wall built around your finances and Jesus can't talk to you about your money, then you and I will not actually live a fully surrendered life until Jesus can have that conversation. And when he has that conversation with us, the big transformative change is that we go from owners, often anxious-filled owners, to generous stewards. How does this happen? When we look at this passage, it's absolutely mind-blowing when we take a look at the context of this passage. Let's read verse 1. It says, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich Generosity. The context of this verse is that at that time, the church in Jerusalem that was gathered in the city of Jerusalem was going through a severe persecution. They were going, the, the, the government, the religious authorities at that time were trying to crush and annihilate the existence of followers of Jesus in that city. There was also famine. There was all sorts of stuff that was happening in that region. And so, what happened? These churches in other cities, in Corinth, in Macedonia, had the idea of let's collect an offering and let's help them. Let's send them some resources. But what's interesting, the contrast between the church in Corinth and the church in Macedonia is very interesting. Corinth was a similar city to what New York is then. It was a hub of commerce. It was the hub of finance. It was also a religious hub. People would go there every year to various religious pilgrimages Um, And it was given over to all sorts of idolatry and pagan worship practices. It was a happening, busy city. It was a significantly wealthier city than Macedonia. And yet, we read about the Macedonian church. It says, in the midst of their own severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. So this church that gathered in the city of Macedonia that did not have as much resources as the Corinthian church, they actually were overflowing with generosity and were giving toward the Jerusalem church. The Corinthian church had pledged to do so, but yet had not fulfilled the pledge. And that's where later on it says, Titus is coming to help you fulfill your pledge. And so it's kind of a tension, kind of awkward moment where Churches that had less resources have stepped up in an exemplary way. Christians that had more resources actually were lagging to provide help. It's interesting because actually, as this has been studied out, it might surprise you, it definitely surprised me, studies have shown that the more money people make doesn't mean that they become more generous. Actually, percentage-wise, the most generous people tend to be the poor. Now, you would think it would be the opposite. Wait, you have more money, so shouldn't you be more generous? But actually, the poor tend to be more generous disproportionately, because I think what happens when you're poor, you face a reality quicker that people with means are slower to realize. The poor face a reality very quickly that people with means slowly realize. The reality the poor faces. We really have nothing except God. God is our wealth. God is our provider. And so from that place of assurance that God is our provider, they're more quicker to to release what they're holding in generosity, whereas oftentimes those with means are slower to realize that. And so if you're here and you say, man, I would love to be generous, but I, just let me get that promotion. When I get that promotion, when I get that raise, you watch. I'm going to help the church buy a building. You watch. I'm going to f- furnish the floor. Thank you. But actually, if you don't start now, you getting more money is not going to change you're, you're, the trajectory of your giving. Because these folks, in their extreme poverty, they welled up in rich generosity. I love the fact that what this verse says offers us something incredibly hopeful for us in now, 2023 in New York City, in that it shows us that overwhelming joy is possible regardless of your income. Let me say that again. Because some of us, if we're honest, we're believing the lie that overwhelming joy is only possible when we go to the next income bracket. That overwhelming joy is only possible if we had more means or more this or more that. Yet, what we're being introduced to is a group of followers of Jesus who had overwhelming joy that wasn't determined by their income. You know how liberating that is in a world that says, this is why you're not happy, because you, don't, you didn't go to this place and you didn't experience that and you don't look like this and you didn't accomplish that. And meanwhile, there are people who had nothing, and they're living in overwhelming joy. Because what happened for them is what needs to happen for us. They did not relate to money as owners. They related to money as generous stewards. Whatever you want, God, we will do. So Paul appeals to the Corinthian believers to follow this example of generosity that's embodied by the Macedonian believers. But yet, what makes that possible? It's one thing to say we wanna be generous. It's another thing to actually do it. And the reality is that there's so many things set against us from actually opening our hands and trusting Jesus as stewards rather than trying to be owners. There's so many fears that we face. There's so many mindsets of poverty that we have to overcome, scarcity. The world tells us to hoard and to keep and to look out for ourselves. And our society is constantly filling up this idea that you and I are our own gods and we determine right from wrong, apart from God, independently, and and so as your own God, who, who should tell you, who could tell you to do anything? We, We call our own shots. There's so many things set up against this transformative change that Jesus wants to bring where we go from anxious owners to generous stewards. How did this happen for the Macedonians? Here's the hope for us. It can happen. If it can happen for people that were living in poverty... and and despite their income, they rose to a place of overflowing with generosity, then there's hope for it to happen to any of us. If we would allow God to do in our hearts what he did in the hearts of these Christians in Macedonia. And what did he do in their hearts? We get a clue as to what transformed them into these generous stewards when we look at verse 9. It says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. The only thing that has the power to transform our hearts from anxious owners to generous stewards is when we look upon the cross when we allow what Jesus has done for us to truly transform us, that is what makes possible this change in our hearts from being these anxious owners to being generous stewards. Have you ever seen some of these stories where people will go from like riches to rags where they start up here, they had all this wealth, all this popularity, and then for whatever reason, now the story begins and they're barely making it by Like, their their station in life has so changed. When you think about those stories, it pales in in comparison to the fact that the living God, the creator of all the universe, became a full human being. The the way he lowered himself, abased himself, humbled himself to do that is mind-blowing. And yet, in that act of making himself poor, that act of generosity for us that is what has the power to transform our hearts into generous stewards when we see the grace that was poured out for us and we allow that to transform us that has the power to take our grip from saying i own this to saying lord it's yours it's yours Because if you did that for me, to own me, to redeem me, to rescue me, (coughs) and how could I settle to continue to live life under the false idea that I actually own these things? You know, one thing that happened to the Macedonian church that needs to happen for us is that there was a change in their hearts before it reflected in their giving. Verse 5, it says, And they exceeded our expectations because they gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. You know, it's a big leap for someone to begin to talk to God about their finances and say, God, what do you want want me to do with my finances if we first haven't let God talk to us about the totality of our life? In other words, if you and I haven't surrendered our lives to God, then it's quite offensive that he would ever dare talk to us about our money. But if you and I have surrendered our lives to God, then it's a natural outflow to say, God, my money belongs to you because my life belongs to you. But we need to be honest that this can be a challenging conversation to have because money often represents some of our deepest idols, the things that we replace God with, the experiences, the comforts, the security that we long for, that often we long for in order to replace God with those things. How easy it is to replace God with a very secure, comfortable job. How easy it is to replace God with a stable relationship. What e- how easy it is to replace God with all sorts of things, that once we have those things, we settle for that being the driving force in our life, the most important thing in our lives, rather than the living God. You know, many New Yorkers, one of the greatest idols that exist in our hearts is a home in the South. Talk to most New Yorkers and say, how are you enduring the traffic? How are you enduring the the crime? How are you enduring this stuff? Sarasota. You know, they'll name some city in the south. It's what they're aiming for. It's what drives them. It's what helps them to endure. Imagine if they don't get that house. How miserable will this experience be? You mean you put up with New York and you didn't get the thing that you were enduring New York for? An idol has the capacity to drive you, to move you, to help you endure all sorts of things because you live as if, I can't live without it, and one day I'll have it. How often we replace God with all sorts of things. Yet, for the Macedonians, the reason why, even though they were poor, they were able to be generous is because they first and foremost gave their lives to the Lord And then giving their money was easy. Whatever you and I struggle to give to God, pause in those moments and reflect and say, am I struggling to give this thing to God because I haven't fully given my whole life to God? Because if you've given your life to God, yeah, it can be a challenge. You might need a lot of grace to do it, but you've already done the bigger thing. You've already surrendered your being. And so it should be less of a struggle, even though it might be a struggle. The Macedonians gave their lives, and as a result, they were able to give their money for the sake of helping churches in Jerusalem. A surrendered life is marked by generous stewardship. And one of the things that money can be helpful as as an indicator as something that helps us to kind of sort through the noise um, and get clarity, is that money, numbers are numbers. Try to stretch a number. A number is going to say, you can't stretch me. Five is five. Ten is ten. It, it, it's not something you can fudge. And actually, like, this is ten, but I feel it's really fifteen. You could feel that all you want. It's still ten. And so, Numbers provide incredible clarity. They're not subject to our emotional whims. And with respect to this idea of am I surrendered to God and can I find evidence of that in my finances, one way, not the only way, but one way that Scripture gives us that helps us to identify if we're living a surrendered life with respect to our money is through the scriptural practice of tithing. Tithing is this practice that we see in Scripture that the people of God would honor God by giving him 10%. Now, the giving of the 10%, why that was significant is because they gave 10% in order to declare 100% belongs to you. And so it's this really fascinating spiritual thing where you're saying, I recognize that you own 100% by me honoring you with 10. And actually, I have faith that I could live off of 90 while me recognizing that you own 100 by me giving you 10 than me trying to live off 100 while me saying you don't own everything. And so through the practice of tithing, what's powerful about it is that it's clarifying because you are either tithing or you're not. We can't feel emotional about it, or I feel like I'm tithing. Money, numbers will help us gain clarity. Again, it's not the only indicator, because for some folks, uh, the greater thing that God may want is their time, and the easier thing for them to give is their money. And so in some situations, it's actually easier for some people to give their tithe, but yet God can't ever have access to their time. And so tithing doesn't save you, doesn't make God love you more, uh, it doesn't make you a better Christian, but it does help to be an indicator or marker of, am I actually living a life that seeks to be fully surrendered to God? If God doesn't show up in our financial decisions and the way we steward our money, that is a big moment to pause, to pray, to reflect, and to ask, am I actually living a surrendered life? Because if the beauty of the cross is transforming our hearts, it should show up in the way we relate to money. It should show up in that we're seeing ourselves going from these anxious owners to these generous stewards. I remember from my mom, growing up, as many of you know, I've shared parts of my story. Grew up in a single-parent home, and my mom, just uh, a most amazing mother I've ever known. She gave herself fully to my sister and I. We were her world. We continue to be her world. But we grew up on public assistance. And so if you... Back then, public assistance was... It's still... I don't want to get lost in this rabbit trail. But I remember when back in the day when you were on public assistance, it was it was extra humiliating in that they would give you these food stamps. And these food stamps were made of the strongest perforated cardboard in the history of man. And so if you were a kid and you had to go to the store and buy something with food stamps, it was very embarrassing. And but try to hide it. You couldn't, because you could wait till the store was empty and you'd give them the food stamp book. And when they ripped it, it was like all the five boroughs knew. You know, it was just super loud. It was like, food stamps are being used. It's like, hurry up, give me the change. You know, it was so embarrassing. You would have to go to these appointments called face-to-face where they would basically grill you to prove that you were deserving of government assistance. It was absolutely humiliating. I hated those appointments where I would have to go with my mom. But this was the recourse she had at that time when I became a Christian I began to get in her ear and say, Mom, we don't have to live this way. You're incredibly smart. You're hardworking. Why don't you go back to school, finish your degree, and you can get a job, and we can climb our way out of it. She did. She went and got her associate's degree in education, began to work toward a bachelor's degree, and then she went and began to work in the Board of Ed, which she recently retired. She had a full career in the Board of Ed. (laughs) Praise God, yes. We went from renting in Sunset Park, Brooklyn, to eventually she bought a house in Staten Island. It was absolutely miraculous, the transformation. But I remember when we were still renting, she hadn't really fully, like, let God break into her heart. You got to understand, when I became a Christian, she was happy but suspicious. At first, she was just like, I'm glad he's not hanging out, but in the streets, but he's coming home late from prayer meetings. I don't know if I, how I feel about this. She was, at that time, Waco, Texas, you know, that big, like, cult. She was persuaded at first. She was like, this might be a cult. And so she was, like, suspicious at first for a little bit. I'm a teenager. I gave my life to Christ at 14, and I would invite friends to come over to our little apartment to have Bible studies and to pray. What do teenage kids have in common? They're always hungry. Starving, and so when they would come, I'm over here. I didn't pay the bills. I'm not buying the groceries. So I'm like, you hungry? You hungry? You get a donut. You get it. like I'm just being generous with food I didn't buy. And so as I go to the kitchen, often my mom, I'm getting food. She's like, more. You know, she would just, you already gave them. I was like, mom, we're just gonna be a good host. She, I could see the stress because if you grow up poor, you're always afraid of not having enough. The scarcity is always over your head. I'll never forget the day where I saw things began to change. Where I had friends come over, and again, they're hungry. I go to the kitchen. I go get some stuff. For that day, for whatever reason, we had donuts in the house. I, I don't remember. We never really ate donuts, but we had donuts in the house. So I go and bring donuts, and what happened? They were still hungry. So I go back, and my mom was like, oh, here. Here's some more donuts. And I'm looking at her face, I'm like, I don't feel the, like, level of anxiety. And then all of a sudden, she was like, here, here, you want me to go to the store and get more? I was like, Mom, I don't want to stress you. I know, like, these guys come over and they're hungry and, you know, they're going to leave our fridge empty. And she was like, God got us. God got us. When you know that God is the owner of your life, of your things... And you and I are not. When we go from anxious owners to generous stewards because we look at the cross and say that act of generosity is what I'm going to allow to change my heart, the transformation that awaits us is profound. As we close our time, as I invite the worship team to come forward, I want to invite us this week to do something that might not feel that spiritual but is profoundly spiritual, I wanna invite you to sit with your checkbook this week. To look at where you spend money, how you spend money, but also how you feel about money. Are you living with anxiety? Are you thinking that your happiness is tied to getting more, and you won't be joyous until you get more? Or are we like the Macedonians, that even if we're in poverty, we know that our joy is not limited to our income, that because of the generosity of Christ, we can actually be generous. This week, during your prayer times, during times when you're just alone with God, open your financial app, open your checking account, and pray. One thing, look for, if you are not actively practicing tithing, That's something for you to consider practicing for your own spiritual health. I need you to know, I'll just say this as a disclaimer. If somebody today dropped a million dollars in the church offering, I don't get paid more. That's not how this works. I got paid a set amount. I'm not doing this for any ulterior motive. In fact, I actually have other jobs beside the church. God takes care of me. I'm, I'm well provided for. He's a good and generous God. I'm encouraging you to tithe for no financial motivation for the church. It's for your own soul. And I know that from someone who grew up in poverty, and I can tell you the most liberating thing that happens throughout my year is when I get paid the joyous moment to say, God, this is yours. I'm not, I'm, money is not my master. My job is not my Lord. You're my provider. And the reminder that I get to, impose on my soul every time I get to tithe is absolutely transformative. I want that for you in a world that says you can't be happy unless you have more. In a world that says you should live as an owner, there is a way that Jesus invites us to live that's so much better to live as a generous steward. And so this week, if you're not tithing, begin to pray, begin to do the spiritual work, begin to build your way toward that take those steps. If you are someone who practices this kind of biblical generosity, pray and and ask the Lord if he wants to stretch your generosity even more. Or maybe you are practicing that kind of generosity, but you're looking at your debt and you're saying, "I'm, I'm honoring God, but I'm not managing things well. Maybe that's something that you need to have active conversations with God. The point is, how could you and I begin to say yes to Jesus in a surrendered posture and it actually show up in our finances in an increasing way that's the invitation that's what we want to see as we say god i want to live a surrendered life so here's my treasure it belongs to you can i invite us to stand as we stand in these next few moments as the worship team leads us in song and prayer and confession over these next few moments the prayer team is in the back, to my right, to your left. At any given moment, as we begin to sing and worship, if you would like prayer for anything, the words that were shared earlier, the message stirred something, You, all you have to do is slip out of your seat and go and receive prayer. I love the fact some people are not even waiting for me to finish. They're already walking in that direction. And so please don't leave here needing prayer and not receiving it. Avail yourself of that. If you feel comfortable doing so, could we raise our hands in the presence of God? Jesus, would you help us to go from being anxious owners to generous stewards? Because all that we have in this life belongs to you. May we live like that. May it show up in our lives. When we say that you are Lord, may our checkbooks reflect that. Come have your way.